0: All right, well, again, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you guys, and I'm excited to have some food afterwards. Um, If you didn't know already, I'm Canadian, so I've already celebrated Thanksgiving, but I'm excited to celebrate it again. There's no problem with that. We're back in the book of John this morning, and we're actually going to finish off the farewell discourse. This is the end of the farewell discourse, the final teaching of Jesus to his disciples before he is arrested and crucified and we're in chapter 16 this morning we're we're going to jump right in actually with with verse 16 let me get my remote here and Jesus says to them a little while and you will see me no longer and again a little while and you will see me and since this is these are Jesus's concluding statements to his disciples um, Since that's what these are, he's keeping things super simple, super clear, right? Actually, no, he's not. Um, The disciples don't understand that this is a confusing statement if you didn't didn't know what was already coming. And so it says in, in verse 17, so some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father, verse 18, so they, were, so they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. The disciples are confused, and, and frankly, for much of Jesus' ministry, they've been confused. In Mark 9, Jesus is trying to explain what's about to come, his death, and his resurrection, and he says to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. Verse 32, but they, they being the disciples, they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. The disciples oftentimes are unwilling to admit that they don't know what Jesus means. And, and, and there are times when they ask him to clarify. Some of the parables, they ask him, this is too hard of a teaching. Can you explain this? And he does. Um, but for the most part, they don't want him to think that they don't understand. And it's not that they don't believe in him. It's not that they, they don't trust him as, and consider him their Lord. They do. They do consider him their Lord. They do believe that he is the Messiah, the one sent to be their Savior. That's why they're following him, right? But his teaching is just sometimes very difficult to follow, even for them, even for his 12 chosen disciples. And I've talked about this before. Jesus purposefully makes his teaching difficult. He purposefully uses metaphors and figures of speech to try to get people to think deeply about what he's saying. Because the deep truths of God can really be difficult for us to wrap our heads around. Um, they really do need us, they really do need to be pondered and chewed on. God's word requires us to, to meditate on it, to, to really mull it over in our minds. And, and at the end of the day, though, what, what God's truth most requires for us to be able to see and understand is the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes and teach us. And so we, we can't be too hard on the disciples here. They have not yet received the Holy Spirit. We in 2023 also have the luxury of having God's full word right in front of us. And we can even open it on our phone or our tablet, right? Or our computer, and, and it's easy to search through, um, so much easier than opening a scroll and, and trying to look back in a scroll and trying to find something. We know what's about to happen to Jesus, and, and they did not. But it's encouraging to me, to and I hope to you guys as well, that I, when we look at the disciples, we see that these are not super spiritual men. These are not the cream of the crop we would have expected jesus to pick the cream of the crop these were just ordinary men some of them were pretty rough around the edges actually there were fishermen have you ever heard the saying he swears like a sailor there's a reason for that saying right these were rough people and matthew was a tax collector tax collectors were considered traitors They were some of the most hated people in Israel because they collected taxes for Rome. And not only that, they usually charged extra so they could pocket that extra money. And so people hated them. And there was Simon the Zealot. A zealot is a a political activist or was a political activist. And in order to get their message across, some were known for doing things that we would consider terrorism now. For example killing Roman soldiers while they're on duty or causing buildings to fall over on people. And we don't know if Simon was involved in any of these things, but we do know that he was associated with this name, Zealot. Anyway, my point here is that we sometimes get the impression that the disciples of Jesus were these super spiritual men. And they did learn to trust Jesus and completely surrender their lives to him and completely dedicate their lives to him. We see that. But at the beginning, Jesus chooses these semi-normal men. I mean, he chooses people that you wouldn't expect him to choose. But back to our passage, um, the disciples are confused again. And Jesus notices that they are confused. And he says in verse 19, or it says in verse 19, Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. And so he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will, re- will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Again, we know what is about to happen, right? As these events take place over the next 24 hours, the disciples would weep and lament, and they would do this as it seemed that most are rejoicing around them. The Roman soldiers at the foot of the cross laugh as they divide up Jesus' clothes, his garments, and I'm sure the Jewish leaders are overjoyed that their plot to have Jesus crucified by the Romans, worked, and just before Jesus is crucified, a huge crowd in Jerusalem chants out to release Barabbas over him and chants to have him crucified. Their, their world, the disciples' world, had turned on their Lord Jesus, but a few days after the crucifixion, the disciples' sorrow would turn to joy, just like Jesus says here, because they would be visited by him, the resurrected Savior. Jesus reinforces uh, what he's just said with, with an analogy. He says in verse 21, When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. So again, Jesus reinforces this statement to the disciples about what is about to take place. Uh, He reinforces it with this analogy. And it's not just a random analogy. Um, This analogy of a woman in labor, in the pains of childbirth, has been used throughout the Old Testament to illustrate the pain that Israel would experience before God came and delivered them. In general, the nation of Israel has suffered at the hands of the Romans for almost a century now. But more specifically, as Jesus mentioned here, the disciples will experience great sorrow. However, the cross and the resurrection are deliverance, just as the Old Testament promised God's deliverance. And, and the disciples' sorrow would turn to joy when they see the resurrected Lord from the dead. As the joy of that newborn baby overshadows the pain, so the joy of seeing Jesus risen from the dead would overshadow the pain of seeing him suffer and losing him and all of the fear that struck them as a result. Verse 23, Jesus continues, he says, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. At the beginning of today's passage, the disciples wanted to ask Jesus what he meant. But after all of these things that he has predicted take place, and he ascends to the Father, they will no longer be able to ask him anything face-to-face, right? But because of what he's about to do, they will be able to go to the Father in prayer. Throughout this farewell discourse, Jesus has repeated this promise of answered prayer four times. In each case, he gives a condition Three of these times he tells them that if they ask anything in his name, the Father will give them what they ask. And one of these times in chapter 15, verse 7, he gives a different condition. He says, um, if you remain in me or abide in me and my words abide in you, then ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. But really, these, these two conditions seem different, but really these two conditions are the same. Because, remember, to pray in Jesus' name means that our prayers are aligned with his will and his purposes. And if he He abides in us, and and we abide in him and his words abide in us, that's what's going to happen. Our prayers are going to be aligned with his will. And so, Jesus is telling them uh, these things, but... They're, the, they're really the same. And so praying in Jesus' name doesn't mean that we we close our prayers with, in Jesus' name, amen. And I think we looked at this before. We don't need to stop doing that. We don't need to stop ending our prayers with, in Jesus' name, amen, because it's a good reminder that everything we do aligns with him and his will. But we do need to know that and, and remember that it's not a magic phrase It's just a very good reminder that we are living our lives for him and that our prayers reflect that. Verse 24, he goes on, until now you have asked nothing in my name, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So what does Jesus mean when he says, until now you haven't asked anything in my name? Well, First of all, he's right in front of them, right? They can talk to him directly. They can talk to him in person. When he ascends to the Father, they'll no longer be able to do that. They'll no longer be able to speak to him face to face. But secondly, the disciples are still learning how to walk in the will of Jesus, still learning how to walk in his way. And, and it won't be become. It won't become a part of who they are until they receive the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Holy Spirit would teach them all things, meaning the Holy Spirit is going to teach them how to walk in the will and the ways of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit would also remind them of what Jesus said. They would be reminded of Jesus' teachings, and they would learn how to follow those teachings— And the Holy Spirit would also bear witness to them about Jesus. And so, just as they are learning to live and walk in the name of Jesus, that is, to be followers of Him, they are also learning how to pray in His name. Praying in Jesus' name is a new concept. This isn't something that the Jewish people previously did. Um, Jesus is introducing something new, and so at this point until this point they have not asked anything in his name and that, and that's just what he's saying here but when they do when they do ask in his name he says two things will happen they will receive what they ask for and they will be full their joy will be full and we've just talked about this so i'll, I'll just be brief here but this doesn't mean that we receive a lamborghini or a bathtub full of money when we ask But it does mean that as we ask for things that are in the will of God, in Jesus' name, as our desires align with his desires, our requests will be answered. And of course joy is connected with this, right? When we're praying for an orphanage that we've been serving at and God answers our prayer, when we're asking God to open the eyes of a friend that we've been ministering to and sharing the gospel with, and he does when we're asking for God to encourage and restore the people of Maui as we send relief and the church on the ground there helps them clean up and rebuild, then of course we're full of joy uh, when God answers those prayers, right? And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. Verse 25, he, he continues, I have said these things to you in figures of speech The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. Jesus used figures of speech throughout his ministry and his teaching. And and remember, remember, we talked about the I am statements. Jesus is not a literal door. He's not actually bread. These are metaphors to try to help people understand who he is and what he's come to do. Just in this farewell discord alone, he's used several metaphors. I am the vine. In the beginning of our passage today, he uses a a confusing statement to convey what is about to happen in in the next few days. So again, Jesus made it purposefully challenging for people. If we want to know him, we have to seek him. If we want to understand truth, we have to seek to understand truth. If we, if we, he's not going to let people just sit back and mindlessly take. People have to seek. And that's a big part of why Jesus' teaching is so full of metaphors and so challenging. God says through the prophet Jeremiah, when the Jewish people are in exile in Babylon, he says in Jeremiah twenty-nine, thirteen, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. When Jesus says the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, several commentators believe that he's actually referring to the 40 days after his resurrection when he appears to the disciples and spends time teaching them, we're told in Acts 1, teaching them about the kingdom. All right, he moves on in verse 26. In that day, you will ask in my name And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. What does Jesus mean here? What I believe that he's saying uh, is that because of what he's about to do, disciples of Jesus can have access to the Father. We can pray to Jesus, but we can also pray to the Father. Jesus wants the disciples to understand that God the Father has the same love for them as he does, as he has shown them throughout his ministry. This is building off of what Jesus previously said in John chapter 15, verse 9. Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. And then in chapter 14, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. When Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to dwell in us, we become part of this Trinity relationship. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have lived in this perfect relationship of love and obedience each knowing their roles and living in perfect fellowship and harmony together. When we receive the Holy Spirit, we become a part of that fellowship. God dwells in us. It's crazy to think about. Verse 28. I came from the Father and I have come into the world and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. This is actually the fifth time that Jesus has told his disciples that he is going to the Father, why do they suddenly understand what he's saying? In the, in the next verse, we see them say, we finally get it. He's also told them that they've, they've heard, sorry, he's also told them and they've heard him say to the crowds several times that he was sent into the world by the Father. I guess he's, he's finally saying it plainly and directly here. Other times, Jesus' meaning may have been unclear, for example, in John chapter 6, when he's just fed the 5,000, he says to them, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And the crowd replies, sir, give us this bread always. So the crowd definitely does not understand what he's talking about. Do the disciples understand what he's talking about well judging by our passage today probably not again at the beginning of our passage they are hesitant to ask Jesus for clarity on what he means how much of their time with him was spent actually trying to figure out what he's saying and teaching so I'll read it again here he says I came from the father and have come into the world and now I am leaving the world and going to the father Jesus has never actually put those three things together in one sentence. Three things being, he's come from the Father, he's been sent into the world, and he's returning back to the Father. He's talked about all three of these things at various times and in various ways, but he's never clearly stated these th- three things together in one simple sentence. And so, what is the disciples' reaction? In verse 29, it says, His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figures of speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And although it looks here like the disciples understand what he's saying, they do understand the statement that he's made, but it's on a surface level. They understand that he's come from the Father, and now he's going back to the Father, but they have no idea the intense suffering that Jesus will have to go through in order for this to take place. And so Jesus replies and says in verse 31, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Is, is Jesus scolding them here? Maybe. But he's also trying to prepare them for what's coming. He says in verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. So part of the reason that Jesus is sharing this with them is, that so, th- is so that they will know what is about to happen and that they will know that it's supposed to happen. He's supposed to be arrested and sent to the cross. And so that's why this information will give them peace. When it all takes place, and they do scatter and abandon him, they will, of course, feel shame and regret, but they'll be able to remember that Jesus predicted that all of this would happen including their own actions of them running away. And they'll remember that he still loved them, even though he knew that. He still stayed with them until the end, until he he was arrested. Remember, he says something similar when he warns them of the coming persecution in chapters 15 and 16. I'll just read a couple of verses from that. In verse 1 of 16, says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. And verse 4, but I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Jesus's purpose in telling them was not just a warning, but another proof that he was who he said he was. He really was and is the Messiah. I'm sure the disciples w- were troubled when Jesus tells them these things. They were troubled when these things actually take place. But it would have been even more troubling if all of this had taken everyone by surprise. Again, Jesus wasn't surprised. And as the dust settled, that would have given them comfort and peace. At the end of verse 33 are Jesus' final words to his disciples before he is arrested. And he says to them, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. It's not going to appear like Jesus has overcome the world. When he's high up on the cross, bloody and beaten, it's very much going to seem like the Jewish leaders have overcome him. And although they may have succeeded in having Jesus crucified by the Romans, they did not succeed in stopping him from what he came to do. He came to teach us about God. He came to teach us about ourselves. And he came to give us life. And because he completed the work that the Father sent him to do, yes, he has overcome the world. And so, yes, the disciples would scatter in fear when Jesus is arrested. And later they would, they would have trouble in the world. They would be persecuted, cast out of the synagogue and beaten some of them killed, but they could rest in the fact that Jesus completed the work that the Father gave him to do. That he came, sent by the Father, and then he finished that work and ascended back to the Father, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And, and they could rest in the fact that he sent another helper, a paraclete, just like him, the Holy Spirit, to comfort them and to teach them and to guide them. This is an important truth, not just for the disciples, but for us as well. And John explains further um, what Jesus meant and what the implications for us are in his first letter to the church. In 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 1, John says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ... And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Our ability to overcome is tied to the fact that Jesus has already overcome. How did Jesus overcome the world? Through his death and his resurrection, right? The resurrection is not just one more thing that Jesus came to do, one more thing that he checks off his list. The resurrection, his death and resurrection, are the center point of his ministry. It's the climax of Jesus' time on earth. Everything that he did and said built up to his death and his resurrection. Everything that he said about himself was proven true when he rose from the dead. This is the end of Jesus' teaching, this farewell discourse to his disciples, his last teaching before he's taken away from them. And and I want us to just think about the things that Jesus has, has said during these past few chapters. We've gone through the whole thing together. Just a couple of things here. First, he has commanded them to love one another as he has loved them. Secondly, He has said that he will leave them, but that he will go and prepare a place for them. He's also said he will return. He's going to leave, but he will return to bring them to be with him in the future. He's told them that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He's promised the coming of the Holy Spirit. He's explained that He is like a vine that, as branches, they can abide in and bear fruit. He's warned them of the coming persecution from the world. And then, lastly, here in our passage today, he's also promised them peace and joy. How will disciples of Jesus experience peace and joy in the midst of persecution? How will disciples of Jesus overcome the world if Jesus has left them to return to the Father? Well, we, we already know the answer to that last question. Jesus lives in his disciples, right? When we receive the Holy Spirit. Again, he says in chapter 14, verse 23, we read this before, but I'll read it again. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and, and we will come to him and make our home with him disciples of Jesus have become the temple of God. This becomes so much more meaningful when the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed in 70 AD. We have become the new temple. God dwells within us. So that fact alone should give us peace and joy because God is with us whatever happens. You may have heard that overcoming the world, peace in Christ, victory in Jesus means that we will be free from conflict, free from struggle, free from poverty even. But that's nowhere in the teaching of Jesus. We don't see a conflict-free life in Acts uh, when the disciples start the early church. We, We see conflict, right? We see persecution. In fact, Jesus promised persecution, but he also promises peace and joy even in the midst of persecution. Again, after everything goes down, the disciples will look back and say, He knew. He knew what was going to happen, and He warned us. And that will bring peace because they will realize that Jesus is who He says He was and is. And again, when He appears before them, they will be overjoyed. He, will, he, he told us this would happen too. And the Holy Spirit will connect all of the dots for them, reminding them of what Jesus taught and what he meant. This will also bring peace and joy. And we can have that same joy and peace. We should have that same joy and peace because Jesus' words are right in front of us. We have the scriptures. And through the Holy Spirit, we also are able to learn what Jesus meant When you read your Bible, you need to start by praying to God that he would open your eyes and that he would teach you from what you're reading and that he would show you how to apply it to your life. And so Jesus' victory is not a promise that we will be comfortable and without trouble, but his victory is a promise that in the midst of the hardships of life, we can have victory. We can have peace and joy under the most stressful circumstances and difficult times because he has overcome the world. Amen? Let's pray.